37 in this passage called the Valley of the Dry Bones where God makes the dead dry bones of people long since past come back to life and he says I can do that and it's um he, he's he's saying he said I can read I can remake I can regenerate I can remake the human heart I can take out a heart of stone and I can give a heart of flesh is the metaphor used in the chapter before that and if somebody were doing a video a month and a half before and they were just describing their experience with that you know how it, how might they describe it Right? If you didn't tell them what to say, they might say something like, it was just like somebody opened a whole new world to me. Or it was like waking up from being asleep, which is almost exactly the metaphor used in the Bible, except it's waking up from being dead is the, is the biblical metaphor, right? And here's the way God describes from his perspective the thing that Dave was talking about. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, I'm going to start in verse 24. And you can just listen if you want, but if you want to turn, it's fine. This is what God is saying to, to his people, Israel, who in Israel represent typical humanity, right? He says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I said this last week, but I think we just need to talk very similarly this week about it, and that is that one of the main thrusts of all of Christian faith, one of the things that Christian faith teaches, that Jesus taught, that really isn't taught in any other religion or worldview in the entire world, that which does make on this point Christianity unique. Now that could also make Christianity false. Like I'm not arguing it's inherently superior because it says something unique. But it is unique to Christianity, and that is this, that if people are going to really change— if we're going to be transformed into what we were meant to be or what we can be as human beings. So here's how that happens. God supernaturally does it to you himself. It doesn't come via sort of the Eastern method of realization or enlightenment. It's not something that comes to you in the form of a thought or realization or understanding, nor is it something that you earn in moral performance making the right choices or doing the right thing so that God will approve of you and you'll be saved. It is something that comes from the outside, from God, and it happens to you. It's something you experience. It's something that a lot of passive verbs could be used to describe. Right? In Ezekiel 36, it's, I will take out your heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. He says, I will put my spirit, I'll give you a new spirit. So all that, all those internal workings, the immaterial self that you know is there because it's running through your brain, you know, like that, how you experience yourself on the inside, I will take, I'll take a good bit of that out and I'll put my spirit in and on you and I'll help you want to do 
the things I've commanded you because they're right and good and true and beautiful, and they, but you don't want to do them, and I will help you want to do them. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll give you a new heart. I'll, God changes us. Just like raising a valley of dead, sun brittle bones from totally dead to totally alive. That is really important to remember if you're coming to church for the first time, like you're kind of trying to learn about the God, Jesus, Christianity slash thing, or whether you've been a Christian a really long time. So <clears throat> you can t- this, title, this sermon can be titled, God Changes Us, or How 25 Prophecies from 2,500 Years Ago Can Prepare You to Be Changed on the Spot, Love God, Enjoy Life, Give Up on Self-Righteousness, and Love Others Without Feeling Anxious, Guilty, and Exhausted All the Time. Whether you like the modern version or the 1746 version. So, um, one of the things I want to do is try to bring together the last four months or so, meaning the last three months and the next month coming up. Because sometimes it's really important, because what we do is you come to church and you kind of forget 80% of what you heard, and you go home. And so sometimes it's important to be like, you remember what we said? You remember what we said here? And and I'm going to say this, and you see how this all— comes together and how it, because sometimes the Bible actually intends to not just have a verse effect, but it intends to have a cumulative effect. You hit this passage again and again, and this, you see the theme again and again and again, and it's meant to have this cumulative effect of weight on you, right? So there's essentially five different prophets that we're going to talk about. Four we've talked about, and one we're going to talk about, okay? These are BC dates, There was Isaiah, and he lived a good bit before these three guys, right? And you'll see that they happened at about the same time, and you see this dotted line right here, and that dotted line right there? That period of time is the seven years of the exile. That's when the Jewish people were taken out of Israel, taken hundreds of miles away, and they had to live within the Babylonian Empire, most of them within the city of Babylon, for 70 years. And most of these prophecies came during that time. And then, 70 years after the first deportation, they were let go and they could return to Israel. And they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the city and they tried to rebuild Israel. And Zechariah happens during that time period, okay? One of the things to recognize is that these guys had read this guy. Do you see this, the time span difference? But there are a couple places where Ezekiel and Jeremiah do not appear to have um, exchanged notes. They don't contradict each other, but it's clear that they're not conscious of what the other one's prophesying at the time. Partly because he's in exile and he's in Israel. They're a long way apart, prophesying at a very similar time. Does that make sense? Okay, now, the reason I say that is because when you start to put together what we looked at in these prophets, it starts to paint a pretty significant picture of how God was going to save us, what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, how he cares for us, what, what his plan is, what he, what he means for us, and all that kind of thing. Now, it's important to recognize that when, when we look at prophets like this, that they don't read like memos written directly to us at this moment in history, right? Like, it, it would be great if like there was this book that was written 700 years before Christ, and it was written for, no kidding, 2014. But here's the problem. If it was written for 2014, it wouldn't even helped you 10 years ago. Like, God produced these works to be inscripturated in the Bible to help all of humanity throughout all of time after they were written. So he's writing to a relatively diverse audience of different kinds of people, but throughout history. So the theologians call it different horizons, but think about it this way. 
Isaiah is prophesying in like 6-something BC, 600-something BC, right? And he's—God he, is telling him something, and he's kind of speaking it in terms of vision forward in time. And so he sees— he, his own time period, right? He's talking to people who live right when he's living. And what he's saying at that point is meant to help people right then, right? Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what's happening right then. He's talking about what's happened in the past, but he's also talking about what's going to happen 70 years in the future when the Jews are going to be released and go back and build Israel, right? But he's also talking about the branch, the Messiah, the king, and so on. He's also talking about the one true king that would happen sometime in the future, right? Which I'll argue was Jesus when Jesus came. So he's talking about this time too. But he's also talking about the final salvation and deliverance of all things, which hasn't actually happened yet, has it? So he's also talking about things even further in the future that you and I have not experienced yet and do not look at with hindsight. We look at it with foresight and therefore very unclearly. And so Isaiah's back here talking to everyone who would come after him through these multiple horizons. One way to think about that is, I don't know if if you've ever driven to Colorado from the east. I have this strange love affair with this state that I'll never live in. And um, when I was 19, a buddy of of mine and I got in a Saab 900 and drove from Evans Mills, New York to Holy Cross National Park. And when we got to the state line of Colorado, do you know what I saw? Nothing. (laughs) Grasslands as far as the eye can see. Because half of Colorado— a little bit more than half is just flat grasslands. It looks like Kansas or Nebraska. And so I, we, so there's, I have a picture in photo albums at home of me standing in front of Welcome to Colorado, flexing my muscles that were about as big as they are right now, and nothing but grassland behind me. And I was trying to hold back the disappointment. And then as you drive, what happens? Like there's a little blue line kind of on the horizon, and then it gets a little bit bigger, and then it's kind of wavy at the top, and then it starts to turn green really slowly, right? And then what happens, and then you get, you know, the city, and then you drive in a little ways, and how much can you see in either direction? A couple of miles, that's it, right? Before, when you were out in the prairie, you could see like 70 miles, right? The minute you get in the mountains, you you can't hardly see around you, right? The perspectives keep changing, and what you see and how you would talk about it changes dramatically based on the perspective. So when you read the prophets, you got to realize this is a guy writing at this moment, talking to these people, everybody in front of him, and he's seeing at least three more fundamental events and eras in salvation history, and we're right here, between the cross, past the second temple, past the exile, before the final consummation of all things, before Jesus is king in the way that we can sense and feel and touch every day, we're like in here somewhere, and we're applying that scripture to us right here. And so sometimes it's going to sound like he's just talking about this. And sometimes it's going to sound like he's talking about this. And sometimes it's going to sound like he's talking about that. And the reason is, because he is. (laughs) And the whole point is, is that these people needed to hear about this and that and that. They need to know they're going to get out of exile in real lifetime space history, and they're going to get to believe God themselves. These people need to know that their, their kids are going to have a future. These people are going to need to know and the, the final king is going to come. And whatever paltry, human, unsuccessful, not-so-great king you have at this moment, he is standing in a line of redemption that is ultimately going to come in the one true king, and it's worth living and worth doing and worth rebuilding, and it's going to point forward to something great, and then there's going to be this king, and ultimately he is ultimately going to reign, and he's going to be our God, and we're going to be his people, and there's going to be peace. And all of that is in these passages, 
And that's why people kind of struggle sometimes with reading the prophets. But when you look at what they all say together, it's, it's pretty great once you strain it out. So for example, one is there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be, there was an agreement with humanity that we had to fulfill. There's going to be a new one that God is going to fulfill. We're going to be part of it, but it's going to be new and it's going to be everlasting. That is, the second covenant, the new one God is going to make, is never going to expire. It's never going to go obsolete. It's going to be it. This is the one everything is led up to, and then everything will be part of. There's going to be a new and everlasting covenant. A new agreement between God and humanity. It's going to be brought in by an anointed or messianic king in David's line. They all say that, right? You see, well, that one says Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And you'll notice, like, the similar kind of language, right? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So not only is the Messiah going to be in the line of kings, but the line of kings is going to fail. And still, God will raise it up in one king. And what happens in Israel's history? The line of kings fails. And there's this stump. But there's some trees, even when you cut them down, what do they do? They stick a shoot out and they start growing again. And, and God said, that's what it's going to be like when I bring about my king. It's not going to be just a normal progression from king to king to king, and then there's going to be one king that's going to be better than the rest. It's all going to end. The line of kings is going to fail, and then yet I'm going to raise up one more son of David, son of Jesse, right? And they all say that. But he won't just be a great king. He'll be a servant. He'll be a shepherd. He won't be the person that rules that we pay for, and we give him all our best, and we— we're his subjects, and we're part of his realm. But he'll be a shepherd and a leader that will so suffer for and care for his people that Isaiah says that he will die as the suffering servant, that he'll be killed and have to take his life up, life up again from the dead. It says in all, all the three major prophets that we covered that he'll forgive anybody who comes to him. Th this king has no... You've done—you've made your bed, now you lie in it. He's not that sort of being. He's not that sort of king. That anybody who says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I want to belong to you. His answer will be yes. And the cost and the price of that forgiveness, he himself will pay, he himself will cover, and he himself will deal with. The forgiveness will be free and done by him. And— that there will—and this is partly where it starts pointing to experiences that we haven't totally had yet. That there will ultimately be a kingdom where he will reign and there will be peace and justice and righteousness. People will understand what is right and they will want to do it. There will be a king and yet no government will be necessary. There will be justice without judges. And there will be peace without the need of soldiers. And that that day is coming. And what we experience now is to the extent to which we have spiritual health in the risen Jesus, we begin to experience a little bit of it in a sub-community of people he has called out, called, well, the word called out is ecclesia, which is translated into what we call church, right? 
And then one of the things, and this is the thing we'll focus on in just a minute, is that he will change them supernaturally, not by a law, not by a claim, not by a demand, not a place that they're going to live, but that God himself will supernaturally, through his own power, initiative, and action, not by our actions, not by how good we are, how good a job we do, but God will himself change the people from the inside out. He'll put his word in our mouth, his law on our, marth, on our hearts, his truth in our minds, and he will help us want what is right. He'll transform us from the inside out. Now, that's a lot of really specific stuff. In addition to that, we saw in the book of Daniel that that king would set up his eternal kingdom four empires after Babylon, so, which world history is pretty clear on what the big empires were. Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greek, Alexander the Great, right? Rome. So it happened during the Roman Empire. And in Daniel 9, he actually gives times where it would happen. The earliest it could happen was 50 BC, and then it would happen by the time the temple was destroyed the second time, which is 70 AD. So a king from the line of David, who would be a suffering servant, who would die and take up his life again, who would take away the sins of all the people in one day, who would transform us from the inside out, set up a kingdom in which we would be his God and he would be his people, who was both human and divine— it would happen between 50 B.C. and 70 A.D. during the Roman Republic. And oh, by the way, the Messiah King will be both king and priest, which never happened in Israel's history and could not happen under the first law. Will happen. All of the sins of the people will be taken away in one decisive action in a single day. And the person that represents that person in the future is a priest named Joshua of which God crowns this priest king and says, you are symbolic of someone to come. This is the man whose name is the branch. And I'll do a whole sermon on this in a couple of weeks. What that means is he said this, the king, priest, savior, messiah that's going to come. Oh, by the way, let me just tell you what his name is going to be. It's going to be Joshua or Yeshua when translated into Greek is Yesu, which then transliterated into English is Jesus. So, when you put this all together, it's pretty helpful. And I would argue that if you, if you hear all that and you go, uh, I just would like to submit you might be being picky. That's all. I mean, just, you, it's, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good layout, right? That's just, and that's just those four books of the Bible, five books of the Bible. Now, I want to drill down on this, that last promise, the one that he will change his people from the inside out. It says in this passage, I will, get, I will t- remove their heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, which means that the, one of the main things that we just have, we have to get this, you've got to get this, and you've got to keep this, is that God does the saving. God does the transforming. God does the changing not us. It's not your faith that saves you. It's not your effort that saves you. It's not how well you deliver on things that saves you. It's not how well you're making use of and living up to what you've been declared in the gospel through Jesus. That, none of that stuff is what saves you or changes you. God, because of Christ, through God the Holy Spirit changes you. He changes you supernaturally through an action of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. And then he gives you his spirit to continue and bring about the full weight of that change throughout your life. You are not 
in charge of it, doing it. It's not your, your faith doesn't have to be in your faith. Regeneration is the, is the idea that God does a supernatural work in us and we're changed. And all we ever do, I, I want you to listen to this next 30 seconds, okay? If you become a Christian or if you are a Christian, you will never do anything but just simply try to figure out what that means and just respond to it. That's all the rest of the Christian life is. Spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, going to church, trying to be a good person, anything, any of that stuff. All that stuff is, is just being changed by God, seeing what that means, realizing who you've been declared to be, Figuring out what that would look like if you lived into it and then just having the conviction to do it. That's it That's it. That's all you'll ever do is simply respond to what God does when he regenerates you One of the reasons why that's important is What most people tend to fall into is they tend to believe that their faith changes them But that's not true. God changes you um, you see, most people who, who go to church on one level realize that you can't earn your way to heaven. There's a lot of people that are Christian enough to say that. They'll say, they'll say listen, you can't earn your way to heaven. But um, there are a lot of ways to still try to earn your way to heaven even when you believe you don't, can't earn your way to heaven, right? So One of the things that we tend to do, and is, it, it, partly this is our own self-righteousness, right? The human heart is just programmed to fall back into pride. And so we want to be able to have something in our hands that we can say, see, I've done this, I'm okay. Okay, everybody has their moralism, right? Whether it's an individualist moralism, whether it's a corporatist moralism, whether it's a political moralism, whether it's um, your moralism is, is that you're not as stupid as everybody else who believes in morality, and you follow the great morality that you don't believe in that, and so you're better than everybody else. I mean, whatever every, people just produce these, you can go to a maximum security prison, and all those people believe they're good people. At least I don't do this, right? And, um, I mean, you see this, maximum security prisons, what happens to child molesters? They get killed, right? Just, right? Now, on one level, you t it's totally understandable. On another level, it's a little self-righteous. Right? Well, you're incrementally a little worse than me. So you die, but I live. Sorry? I mean, what? <laughs> you killed three people, but you live. It, right? We just—everybody, the whole human race, every single one of us, we're just programmed for this. We just want to commend ourselves. We just think there's something that makes us okay. And when we do that, we tend to say, if you say—and if, if I tell you, but yeah, but you can't earn your way to heaven, you go, yeah, I totally believe that. And then you're like, but my faith is really good, and I'm saved by faith, right? Not by works, and my faith is really good. What just happened? You see, you—there are some of you who think that I am just trying to be mean when I say— I get up here on Sunday mornings, I say, listen, your faith is terrible. You think that I'm like riding you down like some like nasty modified football coach who really just wants to kick you. That's not it. That's not it. Um, as long as you put your faith in your faith, you can never be free. Because what kind of faith 
Think about this. What kind of faith does the Jesus, who is God himself, who died for you, deserve from you? You want to talk about the value of your faith? You want to talk about that? What kind of faith does Jesus deserve from you? Does that have any resemblance to the faith that you have at all? I mean, you got to have a lot of hubris to be like, yeah, I'm kicking it, man. <laughs> right? You had better hope. You had better hope that Jesus counts terrible faith as faith. You had better hope for that. And the good news is, the Bible teaches that. Jesus takes our terrible faith. Now, you and I, we might feel totally sincere, but it's because we're indulging in enough layers of self-deception that you could build a skyscraper out of them. Right? Paul said one time, my conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. Right? And so you might feel like, I'm totally, I totally just love Jesus. Okay, right, yeah. But you couldn't even apologize to that guy this week. Like, you couldn't even admit you did anything wrong. And you feel, you know, it's that, that's how we are. And so we have to stop believing. And let me just tell you, the whole evangelical church is full of this. People who can pass a theological exam and say, we are not saved by our works, we're saved by faith, but they really believe they're saved by the quality of their faith, which means they believe they're saved by faith kinds of works, which means they believe they're saved by their works. Come on! And then you wonder why you're anxious and angry and church isn't any fun, and you're, and you're as frustrated about church as all the legalists down the road. You are one! We are one! Right? We just don't believe, and that doesn't mean like, well, you're just trying to make me accepting of everything. No! I'm just trying to make you believe that God saves, not you. That's all I'm saying. If you are transformed from the inside out, it is because God will do a supernatural spiritual work that involves none of your resources, where he changes you ontologically, your very being, and makes something dead alive again, and then gives you God himself in the personal Holy Spirit to apply that and work that and teach you and mold you and make you so that all of your disciplines, all of your Bible reading, all of your religious functions, all of your actions are only ever trying to cooperate with the actual life and activity of God. <clears throat> you know how cultivating you want. If you plant shards from a glass bottle you broke, you're not going to have a nice garden. It's not going to grow a nice Merlot. <laughs> I tried that. <laughs> it is the living seed that with water and soil and sun and heat produces fruit. I say that I'm a gardener. I'm like, I'm a gardener. I like gardening. I do nothing. I sleep. I fling fertilizer at things. And these seeds that I purchased for pennies <laughs> produce these, like, <clears throat> scientific anomalies, the likes of which in thousands of years human beings have never dreamed of creating anything as technologically advanced. And they produce things that I can eat and that are wonderful. And I'm like, well, I grew that. <laughs> I mean, some of you have been to my house. I'm like, look what I grew in my garden. <laughs> like, so, somebody ought to say at some point, I'm sorry. Do you remember the March 27th sermon? Or whatever? April. 
April. <laughs> April. <clears throat> Consider the biblical, because you might be like, Nick, you're kind of pushing this. Ezekiel 36 and 37. No, think about what the whole Bible says about what God does, right? Okay, so stone to, of heart to flesh, right? Dry bones made alive. But l- l- think about the other language the New Testament uses. New creation, right? It says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all died. He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That is, Jesus died for us. If we come to him, we, we sort of all die to that old life. And just as he's made alive, we're made alive in him. And so that totally changes everything. Hence the word, so. See, now all he's going to do is apply the gospel. That's all he's going to do. He's not going to have a 75-hour Bible study so he can feel better about himself. He's just going to believe what Jesus has done, and he's going to think it out and just apply it. That's all he's going to do. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer, Right? A lot of us looked at Jesus and treated him like he was just some human dude. And that turned out to be a bit of a mistake. Right? And similarly, think about this. You and I say we believe that Jesus is the risen Lord, many of us, right? Did you treat the person you said hi to before the service like they were mystically tied up in their very being with that risen Jesus that they should be an eternal divine life-empowered being that cannot be extinguished. Did you talk to them like they were that? Or did you talk to them like their breath wasn't entirely fresh? You see the problem? See, all Paul's saying, Paul's not saying, like, you should be nice to people at church or something. He's like, think about this. Think about what, the way we treated Jesus and what he really was. And then think about how we treat people. And if they're in Christ, what they really are. So he says, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, in this case meaning believes in Jesus, right? He or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from moralistic self-righteousness behavior transformation. No, it's from God who reconciled us to himself through our faith. That's not what it says, does it? It sounds like it could have said that, right? Through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So even if you tell people about Jesus, I tell people about Jesus. Well, so what? That doesn't make you good. If Jesus hadn't told you you could, you'd be blaspheming even trying. Because you're terrible at it. So am I. I mean, I've been studying this thing for two decades. Look at me. I'm like supposed to be the best one out of the whole lot of us. This is pathetic. <laughs> and yet, it go, he goes, well, you know, Jesus gave us a task to talk to people and try to get them to reconcile relationally with God. To say, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to be yours. Will you be mine? And Jesus died for that. And that can all happen. And you could be a new creation. That'll be great. Right? That wasn't very articulate. But it's totally true. Because he, ma- he makes us a new creation, right? So rebirth and new birth, that's, that's a little bit passive, right? I mean, when was the last time a mother just didn't have to work? The baby was like, and we're done. I mean, that doesn't really happen. I've been there for four of them. <clears throat> and Alexi did most of the work. It's 
a relative, that can be an asymptotic percentage. It could be 99.9999. You don't want to argue with me. All right. Like, th- think about this. John, you say, well, like, the new birth, that's John 3. Jesus says you must be born again. Yes, he does say that twice in that passage. But that's not the only place in the Bible. In fact, it's the whole thesis of John. I mean, John, in John 1, says, okay, it's all going to be about this. <clears throat> he, that's Jesus, came to that which was his own, meaning what he created. It belongs to him because he created it. But his own did not receive him. Yet to those who received him, do you see the connection of faith with this transformation? To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice, received is a passive verb, right? It has to happen. You have to do it. In that sense, it's active. But where is most of the force coming from? You're receiving it. It's like catching the football, right? You didn't throw it, and if it— it's a duck, it's gonna die on you, and if it comes in, it's gonna be your base. All you have to do is just squeeze it, right? It's already got its own force, it's already on target, and you just try to not drop it, right? It's passive. You have to do something, but it's very passive, right? <clears throat> it says this, just to, now John's, just to be clear, right? Because he already said they have the right to be, become children of God. Now let's be clear what I don't mean, right? That is, children born not of a natural descent. It's not based on your race, your color, your creed, your background, how great your daddy was, whether or not they were in the abolitionist movement back in the day. None of that matters. Or a husband's will, or literally the will of man, or of human decision. It's, it's not even your decision. Now, do you have to believe? Absolutely. The transformation comes on condition of faith. It does. But it, that, but the faith isn't the transformation. The transformation is done by God, right? Or husbands will, but born of God. Listen, when you're born of somebody, you don't have much say in it, but you're going to be of similar genetics, similar life, similar makeup, similar lots of things. That's what it means to be born of something. Or resurrection. I mean, that's a, that's a relatively passive metaphor, Right? In terms of whose activity is this, right? So Paul's really clear about our contribution to salvation. You ready for it? This is, this is yours and my contribution to spiritual salvation. All of us also lived among them. That's people who were in the world that, that didn't care about God and didn't follow him and didn't trust him. At one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So that's a summary of our contribution to knowing God, being saved, being delivered, being transformed. Everybody take a bow. (laughs) Right? And then Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, maybe the greatest word in the Bible is a conjunction. But, but we're by our very nature objects of wrath. But, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Now notice the activity of this verb. It's not a passive verbal idea at all, is it? God made us alive with Christ. Now notice, he didn't say in Christ there. He says with Christ, meaning, think about this. He's not saying he used Christ to make us alive. That's not what he said. Christ is already alive. He's this risen, eternal, divine empowered, cannot die, cannot shrink, cannot be diminished in any way, and God made us alive 
with Christ. It's positional in this case, not instrumental. He's not saying he used Christ to do it. He said he put us into Christ. He made us alive with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is, to the extent to which we are connected to Jesus, we are already in our very being and possession, seated with him in the heavenly realms of the Lord. That is, it's a done deal. We belong to him. That has happened. In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to Jesus Christ. Now, now, that verse gets read past way too fast. Think about this. This is what Paul is essentially saying. Why did God take a group of people who denied him, didn't care about him, did whatever they wanted, profaned his name wherever they could, why did he take them and out of the riches of his mercy make us alive with Christ? Why did he do that? Is it because, just because in the verse before it says because of his great love, because he was merciful, he didn't want us to go to hell, and so he did that? Is that, is that what it says? It's actually not what it says. I mean, that's part of it. That's true. But you see what the verse actually says? He says this. He says this. He says this. You see, God, this is what, this is what it says. Now, now pay, just pay attention for a minute here, okay? He said, God was so interested in showering his generosity on those sinful critters forever. Okay, so here, what God wanted to do, I mean, this is where you have to say he's like the divine, like, grandfather, because he's kind of acting like a grandparent here in a way, right? He's, he's essentially, he's like, here's what I want to do. Those terrible creatures, I want, here's my end game, right? My end game is, in order that, in the coming ages, he might show his incomparable, the incomparable riches of his grace, the level of which is expressed by the level of his kindness that he showed us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is a, that is a significant amount of kindness. And for ages to come, God wants to demonstrate that to us over and over and over and over and over. In order to do that, because of his great mercy, he gave Christ so that we could be seated with him, so that the favor and grace and love he, could, he, he pours out on the Son rightly forever, he will through him pour out on us forever. Now listen, I know most people will sneer at that. But that is what it says. It's open to anyone who will come to him at, at all. But that is what it says. The Bible does not shirk for one moment. It does not kowtow at all in the absolute unceasing nature of its immense promises about the generosity of God. God is not, is apparently in eternity, not going to be concerned with spoiling people. Right? This is one of the things, the, the reclamation finally of human nature such that we cannot be spoiled will make possible for him to do what would have spoiled us for all of eternity. And that is what he's doing. And that is why he makes us alive in Christ. Now, listen, I'm not, I mean, these aren't really cherry-picked. These are just all through the Bible. So there's four ways, there's just four take-homes to think about this. So you're like, so what do I, okay, what do I do with that? You're basically, should I just lay down in my pew and wait for this to happen to me? 
No, you can act very actively toward God, but you, you've got to start on, from the right place. The, the first is this. If becoming a Christian is something that God does on the, in response to faith that he actually creates in us, and it's a supernatural transformation called regeneration, then it doesn't actually happen incrementally. You are a Christian or you aren't. Now, you can investigate Christ incrementally. Like, you can spend several months or some time trying to figure out, like, well, what's this? I have this question. What about that? And blah, blah, blah. But you're not slowly becoming a Christian. You're slowly investigating whether or not you want to become one, right? And you can grow incrementally. After God regenerates your heart and gives you his spirit to begin to work this out so you can actually become transformed into what he's already put in you, the seed he's put inside of you, that's going to take time. It's going to take the rest of your life. That's incremental. But becoming a Christian isn't. In that sense, we can all on one level know if we're a Christian or not, at least from our perspective. You have to ask God to regenerate you to save you. That's a real condition of salvation, and then he does it. He just does it, and he gives you his Holy Spirit. That's why it will never do to try to act like a Christian before you become one. That never works. Christianity isn't—it's not a system of moralism. It's not about behavior transformation or modification. God makes you a different human being, and then lo and behold, you start acting like one. Right? The second is, um, don't look to your faith as the answer. Look to Jesus and the truth. You have to keep, keep asking yourself, because this is the way you'll fall into moralism. Is my faith in my faith, or is it in Jesus? Is my, is my sense that God's probably angry at me right now, is it because I'm putting my faith in how well I'm performing Christianly? Or am I putting my faith in the fact that Jesus died for me, and he's, he did it so that he could shower out his eternal grace on me forever and ever and ever and ever? Where are you getting that feeling from, that thought from? Usually, if you're a Christian, it's because you're putting your faith in your faith somehow, and you're not supposed to do that. We're not intended to do that. And you can never be—Christianity and faith in Jesus can never have a positive effect on your levels of anxiety or stress or frustration, any of those things, until you take your faith out of your faith. That's one of the reasons why some people be, become a Christian. That is, they join Christianity, and they find that they're actually more anxious. They feel more guilty. They actually feel worse. It's because they haven't actually believed the gospel. They've taken on the behavior modification trimmings of the Christian religion, which have no power to transform. They only have power to make you feel terrible. But if you're transformed from the inside out, you do those things, and when you do them out of faith, they really do change you. It's kind of like when people first start reading the Bible for the first time, right? They become a Christian, they start reading the Bible, and they go, did you know Jesus said this? And you're like— you know, the other Christians are like, yeah, I read that like 40 years ago, you know? But, and they're like kind of excited about it because they realize they just read the Bible and they just found out something about Jesus. And they love Jesus, and so that's awesome, right? And then they realize after they read the Bible a bit that they should read the Bible, right? Because when they read about the Bible, they find stuff about Jesus and they love Jesus. It's, and, then, and then should means two things, right? Should means it's good for you or you're morally obligated to do it. And then what happens in your heart? Whoop! Before you're doing it, you're doing it because you know you're morally obligated to do it. And then when you don't read your Bible, how do you feel? You don't feel disappointed that you didn't get to learn about Jesus. You feel like God is disappointed with you. If you feel that way, you're putting your faith in your faith. You've turned faith into moralism. You need to go back to Jesus. 
Does that make sense? Then let's keep moving. The third is humility in the gospel first, discipline and knowledge next. Listen, I am huge into discipline. I, I just really believe in it. I believe in it parenting-wise. I believe in it um, church-wise. I, I mean, I believe in having quiet times and reading our Bible and praying in regular intervals and having these rituals that we do that really help us make time for things and make sure certain things happen and make sure that we're growing in certain ways that we can look at and see if it's really happening to us. I'm totally for that, and I'm totally for teaching. I mean, my whole life is like— can I, can we please know what we can apply and this will be great. But listen, if those things don't flow out of believing the gospel of God's transforming free, generous graciousness to us in Jesus and the humility that creates, then those other things will always become moralisms. There'll be ways we judge other churches, judge other, judge other Christians, judge against ourselves, or feed our pride so that we stop believing the gospel altogether. If you have to get to the place first where your heart gets a sense of God's immenseness, how small we are and how big he is. A humility that comes from a sense of brokenness about how much God has done for you and how little you've ever been able to respond to that and, and how shallowly you've ever been able to respond to that. And a real desire to be better, not because you just want to achieve more, but that you would be a greater pleasure to the one who loves, has loved you first. And it should produce a very strong sense of thankfulness and a very strong sense of joy. And you should feel your senses of, I've been her and I deserve this and I'm entitled to this, kind of melting away as you worship the one that felt like he was entitled to nothing when he died for us and was raised again. Find yourself in that place and you will find a place of peace and of rest and of life. And if in that place you read the Bible, and if in that place you pray, and if in that place you get together with other Christians and have spiritual friendships with them and fast or whatever, you want, or whatever the spiritual discipline is, it will have a transformative effect on you, and it will produce joy, and it will produce thankfulness, and it will produce devotion, and it will produce life. And if you do not start with humility in the gospel, it will produce death and anxiety and frustration and hatred and quitting. And lastly, and quickly, um, oh, I can't go through the, this right now, but I created a spiritual worksheet so that you can go through and be like, who am I believing and why am I believing it? This will be on the website that you can look at. Sorry, this, is, this would be a lot of fun, but. Um, and fourth, I've said in a lot of cases that the verbal idea is passive on our part, that like we just believe, we just, and belief, there, that sounds really active, but it really is to accept that which God has already offered, already instigated, already done, already paid for, already. It's like sitting in a restaurant, somebody puts the food in front of you, you go, okay, I'll eat it. Um, but even though the verbal ideas are passive, the better way to think about it, because we're not really supposed to be passive. God makes us more active, more courageous, stronger people. We, the, the, our, the, our passive position in receiving the gospel actually is meant to make us more bold, more courageous, because our lives are sorted out. Who we are and what we are is taken care of. Now we can turn ourselves to the world that God loves, cares about, wants to dream, and we can, with real courage, get in there. Not for our own self-righteousness, but just for the good of others and the glory of God, right? And so when we—but yet, we don't want to—we don't want to be like, oh, I'm doing this. And the way that happens is when you think in terms of responsiveness rather in terms of passivity. We're not just passive, we're responsive. God initiates something and we respond to it, right? So you read the Bible and— and God says, that thing, that's not okay, right? Now what? Well, you've got to deal with that. 
why isn't it okay? What, what is it about the character of God? Are you willing to believe in him? And what would it look like if you did? How does that work? What are you going to do? You see, if you, if you say, if you're legalist, you'd be like, well, that's bad. No, the question is, are you going to trust the God who says X? Are you even going to ask, well, why does he say X is bad? And what if I can't figure it out? Am I willing to believe it before I know why he says it's bad? It's hoping that in my experience of obeying him, I will find out? You see, even though we are responding to God, it's still a very active process. But we have to look at it in terms of believing. How are we trusting in God in this way, rather than just, am I doing the right thing? The minute you start doing the right thing, because you want to be doing the right thing, what you really are going to think is that you're tallying up some good credit in your God bank, and that God's going to have to deliver for you when you cash that in. You can't not think that way. That's the way it's going to think. You're doing the right thing. You're doing God a favor. You're, you're getting some God bucks, and you're going to cash those in when you don't want to have that disease anymore. That's not how it works. You believe in Jesus. He initiates something. You figure it out. You decide, and how can I believe him? How can I trust him? How can I just walk in this? And what you'll find is, the legalism will, will go away a little bit, and you really will just find yourself making these character decisions, these choices, these relational decisions that just are not the same kind of decisions. You'll just be a dip, but, you, but you'll still be growing. You'll be changing. People will be able to see it. Your character will transform over time, but you'll be happier, less anxious, more truthful, and yet, even though you're receiving it passively, people will find you're stronger, you're more courageous, you're more resolute, your convictions can't be shaken. That only happens when you rest and embrace the fact that God changes us. We receive it through faith, but it is done through His supernatural power. And then we embrace it. We keep going back to it. And we live in response to it. We don't ever get past it. If you do that, if you believe God changes us, it will change everything in the way we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, pr I pray you'd use this to help us and to help us be a people that believe and entrust you, that don't believe we're doing anything but responding to how you're leading us and applying the new life you've given us. We pray that you'd make us sensitive to your leading and not so that we could just feel bad but so that we could see what it is you're doing and that we could figure out what it looks like to trust you in terms of who we're trusting and how we would do the trusting. We pray that you'd help us to see how it is you transform people and to recognize that we can have a lot of rest and peace and comfort in the fact that you are the one who does this. Help us to believe that that's really good news, not bad news. And help us to rejoice in the, how clear a picture you painted for the one who would come to set up that kingdom and that way of transforming things. The king priest from David's line who would come at a certain time and be named Jesus and would create forgiveness for all people and transform us from the inside out. Amen.